I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello. Thanks for downloading this episode of Politics on the Couch. And a special thanks if you're supposed to be doing something else but listening to this podcast instead. If you're deferring some important task, don't feel guilty about it. You've come to exactly the right place. Get comfortable on the couch, because this week, the podcast is all about procrastination. Why we do it, whether it matters, and what it has to do with politics. Now, as individuals, we're always putting off the tricky chores, the things we know need doing, but still find ways to avoid. It's such a common, normal habit, we hardly even think of it as a psychological mechanism. And then there are the hard tasks we put off as a society, things that need fixing by way of collective political action, but that our democracy just doesn't seem able to get on with. Look, there are lots of reasons why politicians avoid hard choices. Mostly it's because there's some group of voters that the government doesn't want to annoy. Sometimes it's as simple as not wanting to tax people to raise the money that's needed to tackle some difficult problem. And sometimes it's a matter of keeping special interest groups on side. Take house building, for example. MPs know the country needs more homes, but they'd rather see them built in someone else's constituency. Why? Because the votes of existing homeowners who don't want new properties plonked in their backyard count, and the hypothetical future votes of the people who will move into those newly built houses don't. Or at least they're counted somewhere else, in some other MP's backyard. We can all agree, in theory, that something urgently needs doing, and that the problem will get worse the longer we postpone the remedy. And yet, time and again, the democratic process delivers delay over action. And the more forbidding the task, the easier it is to somehow prioritise, well, almost anything else. The scarier the consequences of inaction, the deeper we plunge our heads into the sand. We know we have to get through a transition to carbon-free energy, for example. Otherwise, we'll face catastrophic climate change. We know the population is getting older. We don't have a social care safety net to catch us when we fall off the end of our working lives. But electoral politics has a bias against making voters confront things they might be emotionally indisposed to look at. And to me, that feels like a built-in procrastination bias. 
So to understand it better, I went to a psychologist who knows all about the harm in delaying action on things that demand to be done. She is Fuchsia Sirwa, Professor in Social and Health Psychology at the University of Durham, also a Fellow of the Wolfson Research Institute for Health and Wellbeing, and among many other publications, author of a book entitled Procrastination, What It Is, Why It's a Problem, and What You Can Do About It. I wanted Professor Sirwa to help me join the dots between the individual psychology and the collective politics of procrastination. And she absolutely did. It's a wide-ranging, inquisitive, instructive conversation. It loops around brain science, individual psychology, there's some philosophy on how democracy should work and why it sometimes doesn't. That's what this podcast is all about, in other words. But I started with definitions. There are lots of reasons why things might not get done. Some might blame laziness or forgetfulness. So what specifically are we talking about when we say procrastination? So uh, procrastination is a particular type of delay that happens when we have an intention to do an important task, but we unnecessarily and voluntarily delay that task despite knowing that there's going to be negative consequences for ourselves or others. So it's, it's a form of harmful delay. I can sort of imagine what that harm consists in when it's, you know, you've, you've got important things to do and you don't do them or you don't, you know, don't pay your bills and then you get, you know, your electricity gets cut off or whatever. But that, that, that sort of material harm that comes from not making, not doing something that you ought to have done. But I imagine you're talking at a, at a deeper level about, you know, a, a harmful process the harmful sort of habits of mind as well as actual harmful things yeah i mean yeah i mean so there, you know, there, there is the, those practical um harms of course and, and sometimes we can't always anticipate those but we do know that we put things off or to and leave them to the last minute if you like um that's stressful right so there's that sort of that collateral damage of procrastination um inevitably we're the receivers of that so you know you know, all the research has been done on, on students saying, oh, yeah, I do my best performance when I put, put off studying to the last minute, for example. You know, I, I got a good grade. Well, yeah, you got a good grade, but actually the research, when you when you sort of drill down into it and look at it in a little bit more of an objective and controlled manner, what the research consistently shows is that you perform worse. So there, the harm there is not that you didn't fail. The harm is that you were stressed out of your mind and probably, you know, compromised your immune system and, you know, had other ill effects on on your your mental and potentially physical well-being from putting things off. So that collateral damage usually happens to the self when we procrastinate. Um, And if we've done it enough times, we tend to know that we get stressed and we, you know, recognize it, but we might then just kind of forget about that along the way. That's really interesting. It was something I was going to come on to later, that the, I'm one of these people who's always sort of fancied myself as uh, performing better under exam conditions. I'm a journalist. I need a deadline. Uh, I'll make myself seven cups of tea before actually sitting down to do something with that sense that I need the adrenaline of the proximity of a deadline to perform. And we had a prime minister in Boris Johnson who was very much that type. And in fact, I think it's an it's almost an archetype of a certain kind of British a successful dilettante figure who 
doesn't do the homework, doesn't do the revision, crams it all the night before and then delivers on the day in the exam, uh, the sort of the almost the heroic mm. procrastinator. And you're saying that's a no. myth, right? That's not, you, know, you may think you did better because of that, but actually, and what is the evidence? Because it's a very alluring myth, isn't it? It is. It is. I mean, there's a couple of things around that. Okay. So th- there is the evidence that look at students who gave themselves enough time um, and so looking at mean levels of performance and those who didn't and procrastinated and, you know, looking at their previous and past performance, it does tend to be significantly lower when you when you use that style of, say, studying, for example. But there's another part of it, I think that's, you know, without the evidence, I mean, the evidence there is, just, is there to support it. But the other part of this is just logically think about it. So if that is, in fact, your, you know, you know, that's how you work best, then you would choose to do that all the time, right? It would be a conscious choice that this is my working pattern because that's how I work best. And you would never even attempt to try and start things early because you'd know that that you wouldn't actually get that. So you, you start seeing where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. It starts sounding a little bit illogical. So from that perspective, then what what we commonly say for those who procrastinate and then say, oh yeah, well I do my best work under pressure. It's a post hoc rationalization. It's it's a realization that you come up with to justify the behavior after the fact rather than justifying the behavior ahead of time. But there is an extent, is there not, to which stress when it's not at sort of dangerous levels increases performance, you know, because... Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That inverted you, the performance thing. But, but the issue there is, I mean, you need a little bit of stress. I mean, so that could be the stress of, oh, this is important. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that hang on me doing this. That has nothing to do with, I mean, that's that's, nothing, that's independent of when you start. There's mm-hmm. always going to be those pressures. Do you see what I'm saying? So you can tap into that. You can tap into that at any time by thinking about, right, this is important. This means I have to do it this way. I've got to do my best performance. So anytime we, we seriously apply ourselves to a task, that is there in the back of our mind so that we have access to that that pressure, if you like, that mental pressure and that drive to motivate us. That we leave, when you leave it to the last minute, that's a different thing happening. Now you've actually compressed that even more. And so it is true that some people will use that as sort of a, what they say is a motivator, but that it's not the best motivator. Um, and it doesn't lead to to good performance, and and then in effect, it is it is part of a procrastination pattern. Right, and this is where we, we we can start to zero in on on what's happening and how it will eventually, in later in this conversation, become politically relevant. <laughs> because you say we, we we have access to that and we can use it, but we don't, and and all the evidence, a lot of the evidence is that that we don't. And you know, when I said like you know we need a deadline or I need a deadline. You know, I would love to write a great novel or just any novel. Uh, it's not for me to judge whether it's great or not. Um, but until the publisher says you've got to deliver it by, you know, October, 2025, then it's not going to happen. Uh, and so that sense of you need to, you need something other than the abstract idea of my self-interest to give me the will to achieve the thing. And that can either be literally my boss saying, you'll be fired if you don't do this thing, or my you know wife or children saying, we have to leave the house now. Mm. Or it can be my own guilt and fear of a negative outcome or, or just distress. So w- w- when you say we have access to it, I, I suppose what I'm driving at is 
where is the reservoir of will to do things in a more timely fashion, if not from the panic of having left it too late? Well, that's the thing. So I think I think it's on a continuum. I think it's a really good point. So what point does it get to extreme? So, so you know, so a lot of it has to do with thinking about the ability to think towards the future, uh, prospective thinking, right? And there's a particular area of the brain that is, you know, um, in charge of that, our ability to think about the consequences of our action in the future. And so taking that into account and thinking, oh, if I don't do this, this is what's going to happen, those sort of contingent, you know, sort of um, action contingencies, horizons, if you like, of what will happen on the horizon if, if I do or don't take this action now. Um, that gives us the, the insight to say, right, these are the potential consequences, so I better get my acting gear and, and do that. And, and that type of thinking is especially helpful too when there is a lack of structure. So just sort of as an aside there, we know that people procrastinate on tasks where there's a lack of structure. So yes, we all need structure. We need deadlines and all that type of thing. It's how we manage and negotiate our, our action um, and, and leverage our will towards that action to, to reaching those goals within that timeline that makes a difference between whether we're procrastinating or not. Um, and so back to this idea of, okay, so we all have access to it and, you know, accessing it at the last minute or ahead of time. One of the things, if we can think ahead to those consequences, that might kind of scare us a little bit to think, right, I better get my act and gear and get going on this or bad things will happen. But it's a part of a, a negative motivator. You could also look and say, wow, if I do this, all these positive things will happen. And I really want those rewards. So some of us are more reward driven. Some of us are more um, risk averse, <laughs> you know, in the way that we that motivates and, and drives us into action. Um, but for someone who's prone to procrastination, thinking about the negative things that could happen and not getting it right is enough to actually make them delay. And the reason for that is because of the psychological dynamics going on within the individual. And what I see as being the actual sort of ground zero for procrastination, which is not being able to manage negative emotions. Now, whether these are negative emotions attached to a mentally simulated future that we fear will happen if we don't get the task done or how we'll be judged in terms of a performance of that task, or just our own feelings of, I don't think I can do this. You know, I, I, I'm not capable of it. So the, the fear, the guilt, the self-doubt, all these negative feelings, not being able to actually sit down and grapple with those or find a way to maybe reframe them so that they are more manageable. Um, individuals that have difficulty with regulating those emotions are those who are prone to procrastinate. So think of this. This is really interesting. Can I just sort of backtrack a bit just to say this is clear in my mind that there's a terrible irony here, as I understand it, which is that the thing that needs attending to, the more significant it is or the more it's bound up with something of great consequence to me, creates a sort of mental shadow that is is in some way alarming or fearful. And because I'm not good at processing or I don't really have a good way of of, of dealing with how I'm actually going to get through that emotion, I, my the response I choose is a kind of a, a denial or a coping mechanism. That means I don't engage with the fear. And then paradoxically or ironically, that makes it much worse because I've exaggerated this terrible thing. And instead of going to the root of the problem, which is would be doing the thing, uh, I've, I've, I've gone down the other route of procrastination, which sort of solves the problem in the most immediate short-term way, which is, I'm not having to confront this thing because I'm not doing it. 
Is that right? Yes, exactly. So, so essentially, if you're having difficulty regulating the emotions around all these thoughts, and, and I'll get, I'll, I'll come back to that idea of what you said of sort of, you know, we make it catastrophizing or making it just some horrible thing much worse than, than what it is, because there, there's a dynamic there as well. You know, you can't manage those emotions in the moment. They're just, you can't tolerate them. You have difficulty. They're overwhelming. You just don't do well with these negative emotions. You need a quick and fast mood regulation or motion regulation strategy. And taking that task pushing it aside out of your consciousness, out of, you know, over on, on the sidelines and focusing sometimes on something else more pleasurable is an immediate quick fix. In other words, procrastination is a form of avoidant mood regulation, pure and simple. Right. And so would I be right? I'm speculating wildly here, so I might well be wrong, but would I be right in thinking that in that way, it's sort of you're getting the sort of the sugar rush of oh I'm not doing the the thing that I'm afraid of I'm not confronting this thing that tastes nice uh, and then as with anything else like that you will then have a crash where you then have made it much worse because you've postponed the thing and that that's almost like an addictive cycle that they, I, you, you can almost get addicted to procrastination because each time you get the hit of I'm not doing the thing. Yes, it's sort of, you're, you're almost there. It, so procrastination is self-reinforcing because you're rewarded for relieving that negative mood and maybe doing something more pleasurable, right? It doesn't mean you're going off doing something fun. A lot of people procrastinate, get very busy unnecessarily reorganizing their offices, their kitchens, completely cleaning their house. Yeah. Sorry, Sister, and this is why procrastination isn't laziness. I, this is, I, you said something, I referred to this, it's not the same as being lazy. Because exactly. I like to think of myself as also quite lazy. I don't like to think of myself, I think of myself as a bit lazy, but I'm, I'm actually not necessarily, <laughs> um, uh, but I am a procrastinator. They are different things, right? Yeah, they are. No, laziness isn't a cause of procrastination. Procrastination is all the root of this, is, is this inability to to manage and, and, and negotiate these difficult emotions, whatever the source of them may be. Um, whether, however realistic or overblown they may be. You were right in saying that, yes, that thing that you put off now, the pressure builds because you're closer to the deadline. You know, it might get worse. People might be, you know, getting on your case and saying, where is it? You said you have this report done by this time or what have you. That's not the only way that it gets worse. This is where it gets really kind of um, tricky is, is that what some of the research has shown then is that People procrastinate. They don't just go off, oh, happy, you know, this is great. I feel good now. That doesn't last. It's completely temporary because they then start thinking, right, like it's not, you can't actually completely put it out of your mind. It takes effort, cognitive effort to push it aside. And it inevitably comes back into your way of thinking. And every time it's there, what happens? You feel bad about it. You feel guilty, right? Um, you, you know, you start feeling maybe even ashamed if other people are involved in what the thing that you put off, right? And so now you've got another layer of negative emotions piling on top of the other pressures. And what happens when if you're really bad at dealing with negative emotions? What are you going to do? You're going to put it off again. Yeah. So this is and shame. I'm fascinated by shame. Actually, but we recently had an episode on regret. You know, people going off the idea of Brexit if they voted for it or never liking it in the first place. Mm -hmm. I'm intrigued by the sense that you know, what's what's poorly understood in, in that is often, I think, is the sense that it's so hard for people to not just say, well, there was this decision that that was a wrong one, but I participated in this thing that actually I, I'm a bit embarrassed by or ashamed of. And that negative emotion, it's such a powerful thing. And I then into in, in this context, the idea that you would fuse onto your anxiety about or stress about the difficult task, you sort of you'd coat that with another layer of shame, which is this is the origin of my lower self-esteem. I'm the person who doesn't do these things. Mm -hmm. I can't manage my life properly. Exactly. 
that in that that's you're, you're, that's actually going to make it much worse. Yes, yeah. Ultimately, yeah. yes, and make you procrastinate more. Yeah. You know, because this is notionally a politics podcast. Let's try and build this bridge now. Uh, uh, you know, well, I'm going to come back to some other because you've already there's so many ideas flying around that I really want to explore more in purely on the psychology. And by the way, you mentioned bits of the brain that deal with future ideation. Um, it, we're not afraid of getting into a, a bit of actual n- you know, neurology and brain science on this podcast. So I, I do want to come back to that as well. But that sense of the, the origins of stress and things that are difficult to confront, would it be fair to say that if you know, the, the the sort of psychologically harder things are obviously going to you know, make, make us recoil from confronting them more. And so, I mean, in terms of things like political decisions that constantly get put off, one that always springs to mind is the problem of social care, uh, big and end of life care. And that is because you, no politician mm-hmm. wants to say to people, you're definitely going to die. And if you and you might well end up with crippling dementia before you die, so let's all think about that now <laughs> and what we should do. Right, that is not a politically attractive thing for anyone no. to do, and therefore it becomes sort of collectively politically procrastinated. Is that a sort of a reasonable extrapolation to to make here? I think it is. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. You know, we we have. I mean, there's different layers there. Obviously, you know, what I've been talking about is on an individual level. Um, some of the negative consequences there are going to be, like you said, more on a political level and a social level. And, and But collectively, yes, we know that people don't like to think about difficult outcomes or, or things that, you know, might involve poor health or death or anything like that. So, I mean, and this is actually, this is actually, there's been so, some research on this and a bit of speculation around this idea as well, which is why you see people procrastinating in terms of setting up their insurance, life insurance, right? It's a huge area where all the financial planners are going, how do we get people on board with this? Because you have to make them think about death and you have to make them think about these difficult things. And people do tend to procrastinate the retirement savings. They don't want to think about what am I going to do after I've, I've finished, you know, work, especially if work is really something that's sort of part of their identity. And a lot of people have, have a struggle a lot when they go into retirement because of that change and shift of identity and purpose. There's, there's some parallels there that, that would suggest that, that a similar type of dynamic would happen anytime you have to bring up, like you said, difficult things like death or losing, you know, your functioning, your, your health status. Yeah, I suppose we don't need to be so gloomy about it, but just the point about, about retirement, you know, makes the same argument that i mean the, one of the more successful i think policy decisions made in the last couple of decades i'll have to look up the date um it, it is auto enrollment where essentially the, the government more or less said well, we can't trust people to just sign up for their <laughs> occupational pension scheme it happens automatically and then you can you can you know you can choose to opt out but you're opted in by default and that's actually i think generally by consensus and at the time there are, i think there were a lot of there's some conservatives who said well no that's taking agency away from the individual that's the state arrogating a right people should should be able to choose this stuff i think now most people agree that was probably a good idea for exactly. precisely this reason it just takes takes the choice away from you on that specific point of retirement i suppose there are two things one is i don't want to think about myself as a debilitated old person in a care home uh, alone dying that's a sad thing for me to think about might not be like that let's hope it's not but anyway uh, and the other one is i literally you know, going back to your point about the, the brain and 
ideation about the future is that's literally someone else in my head like future raf is someone who i why, why should i look out for future raf i've got current raf to think take care of exactly yeah so so that that our capacity to think about the future and future self too is not highly developed in a lot of people so there are some of us who can think about that but um, sorry to interrupt can you unpack some of the cognitive nuts and bolts can we just sort of get under the hood of the cognition that's going on there in terms of me having an idea of future me who will benefit if present me puts some money in the bank for him now. Yeah. So we call this future self-continuity. So it's the extent to which you see a connection to your either um, close or distant future selves, right? So how much is that future self? And we, we measure it quite in a very simple, simplistic manner, just with sort of overlapping Venn circles, right? So, you know, people indicate, so how close does the one month future you feel to you? How close is a six month future, five year, 10 year, 20 year future self? And what the research has found there though too is that that sense of how connected we feel that in other words, do we see that future self like a part of us just temporally extended or does that person look like a stranger? We actually can't come up with a firm, uh, you know, concrete idea of what that future self will look like, right? And, and some some of the reasons why we not might not be able to have that firm view of that future self is because we don't have clear goals for ourselves for the future. So that's been shown because our goals are actually sort of taking our present self and saying, these are the things I want to develop. These are the things I are the person I want to become. This is what I want to do with my life, my sense of purpose. This is where I see myself going. And if I've accomplished these things, I'm becoming the person I want to be. So the, the more focused, the more clear we are about those goals, the more concrete that future self is. Okay, so that's that's one thing that, that can factor in there. Um, but generally speaking, though, we do have difficulty with that. And there's been some really great brain imaging studies that have found that clearly how that future self can look like a stranger, right? And they've, you know, asked people to think about, you know, even like a, a five-year future self, for example. And also a closer future self. So how does, you know, like a one month or which, you know, we can think about ourselves in a month. It's it's not, not going to seem like uh, that person is, you know, you know, the one month future, the one month math isn't going to seem that much like a stranger. But then you, you extend that timeline and they look at the brain activity. Then they ask them to think about somebody that they don't know, like a movie star, Brad Pitt or Madonna or, you know, whoever, right? And what they found was that the activity in the area of the brain that having to do with um, prospective thinking, how much is being activated there, when you think about a stranger, a Brad Pitt, for example, versus your five-year future self, they look identical. Wow. This is why, this is why I love doing this podcast because I just, I love this stuff. This, so, and it makes perfect intuitive sense. So uh, to, to the extent that, for example, you know, so I've, I have suffered from cardiovascular disease and that's, partly you know or in no small part because uh you know old raf 20 years ago raf smoked too much and that raf knew very perfectly well it was not a secret that smoking was bad for him but the person who it affects is me and at, if i go back in time to that raf the you know, 20 year old raf even though he knows that 2020 raf might have um cardiovascular disease it, it, that's like saying Brad Pitt will have cardiovascular disease. That doesn't really matter. I'm not actually able to connect the choice, the decision I'm making at that moment to a consequence that's realistically visited upon the self. That's a really hard thing to do. And and so, but this is most people. Are, are like that. Some people have the ability to connect more. And I think that strengthening that connection with the future self has a lot to do with setting clear goals and having a strong sense of identity and who you want to be and what you want to accomplish, et cetera, et cetera. Now, now going back to the 
procrastination. Probably not surprisingly, um, they found in looking at similar types of brain imaging studies and looking at activation of the brain um, in people who chronically procrastinate versus those who don't, um, is that they find that the areas of the brain having to do with this prospective thinking and thinking about the future self are underdeveloped compared to those who don't chronically procrastinate. And they also have, ch um, there's changes in the areas of the brain that have to do with mood regulation. So it's this whole idea again about having difficulty with regulating the mood, but What's the, sorry to interrupt, what's the intersection there? So is that not only, so the combination of struggling to connect co like present consequences to future yep. self and also a kind of labile mood that means tr being confronted at, at any sense with there is this consequence that you'll face and it's a negative one is more likely to trigger a kind of panicky fight or flight reaction that means I'll tell you what, I'll just go and reorganise my spice rack instead because that's, I'll put my CDs in alphabetical order. I mean, that's exactly it. So we, you know, we put out a theoretical model about 10 years ago now, but this idea at the root of procrastination was a sort of deficits in temporal thinking and mood, and they play into each other, right? So there's a prioritization of immediate mood relief over the future consequences of attending to and regulating that mood now, rather than regulating your behavior towards reaching your goal. The other side of this too, and I think it's very complex. And again, we're just, you know, a lot of this, we're just touching on the surface and making inferences from other research that's been out there. And this is an area that I'm, I'm actively engaged with right now and hoping to, to actually get a bit more solid evidence around. But, but the, the main idea here is too, is that when we are under stress, when we aren't able to regulate that mood and that mood then can, can in some ways can contaminate our ability to think clearly about the future, one of the two things it can do is it can make, it can foreshorten your view of what I call the action contingency horizon. In other words, how far ahead can you see the actions that are contingent upon what you do right now? If you don't see that far ahead and you only see the immediate and that's with your main concern and, and that makes sense from a stress response, mm. right? So our brains are wired to be protective. And so when we encounter a stress, which are you know, primitive brains still interpret as if we're, you know, being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger or warring tribe or what have you, or we're about to fall off a cliff. We react in this very strong way, and it's about immediate survival and immediate got to get out of the situation. So the fight or flight, right? Reaction. There are a number of obvious and slightly, for me, disturbing political implications from this. One is that well, we know already that a certain type of politics will actively seek to promote and stimulate the fight or flight response because fear is such a great motivator mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the implications there are in terms of representative democracy where part of the thing that's supposed to happen is you make strategic choices about things over time uh, and so I'm not necessarily talking about here about, you know, we have to reform the health service and that's going to take a long time and we'll need to spend money. I'm talking actually about almost the electoral process where you say vote for this leader or for this party. It's not all going to be, you know, clover and milk and honey the tomorrow or even the day after tomorrow. But we've got a f four or five year term. And over that time, then you make a judgment as to whether it's worked and you can either keep them in for another term or vote for another lot. And if we're sort of struggling to project that far, you know, that that continuity of our, of self into, well, what's it? What's the world going to look like? What are my interests going to be in 2027, 28, 29? And there's another candidate who says you can have everything you want right now. Yeah. Then the sort of responsible democratic candidate 
loses to the but essentially the procrastinator candidate wins by saying you don't need to worry about that like that's all scary stuff but it's all right because the answer's here right now and you get your sweets tomorrow it plays into our our weaknesses and 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 you know of, of wanting immediate gratification right of wanting to and it's easier to think about what we have now rather you know being able to delay gratification and make sacrifices for later is not something that's easy for a lot of people uh, and and this is you know the mood regulation is tied in with that as well too right so when people are in that more stress position right and you appeal to the fears right we, you know you get that what they call the amygdala hijack right so in reacting to a stimuli in the environment the amygdala kicks in if there's is a fear or threat detected with that because that's our threat detection part of the brain. Just to clarify, the amygdala is your literally walnut, the walnut size bit, the base of your brain yeah. uh, that does that does your kind of oh, let's say saber tooth tiger just run or grab a spear. It's a very primitive part of the brain, but it is. It's- yeah, and hide. So, but when there, there are circumstances in which that. Yeah, it's a great expression. I don't think we've ever had you. I've come across it. We've never actually had it on the podcast before. But amygdala hijack that sense that your ability. To- yes, I didn't. I didn't make that make that up. But it is. It is about that. Yeah. No, no, I've come across it. And the, and the idea that your ability to do the sort of as it were the higher level cognition, thinking about thinking and judging and and the sort of or or the sort of type two thinking in, in some terminology that you make you can sort of overcome your obvious cognitive biases gets short-circuited because you're just in a sweat and a panic yeah so that it, it takes over and it, it takes effort then to kick in with the more prefrontal logical future perspective you know simulating possibilities um part of the brain and so that takes that takes effort for one uh, and but it's also just you know just basic, you know, what we know in social psych about um, persuasion, right? That some people are more persuaded by very emotional arguments too, um, versus very logical, more well thought out, rational thinking ahead towards things. Part because of what's going on in the brain, and it's not just the amygdala, it's, you know, other parts of the brain that have to do with with emotions and emotional memories. So it might remind us of a fear that we had in the past that can come in and kick in too. So you can reactivate old emotions, right? And so it's not just what's in the moment. So it's, it's this whole temporal mood experience, right? So you've got how you're feeling right now. You're not happy. They act, you know, something's activated about a fear that might happen in the future, which might remind you of something you happened in the past. And this all sort of builds up into this more overwhelming emotional experience. But it's not just about thinking short term. Uh, this myopia is not just about a foreshortened action contingency horizon. It's also about a narrowing of the view of possibilities. Because that's cognitively, that's also what happens when we're stressed. We, you know, when going from a pure sort of primitive stress, you know, cognition perspective, when we are stressed, right, that that stress response is designed for us to A, detect threats and be vigilant to those threats, scan the horizon, tune in only to the threats. So we're narrowed down to only be sensitive to the threats. That makes it very difficult to see positives, to see opportunities to see growth, right? So when we're in a stressed mindset, it actually, you have to actively do things and-, and This is very interesting. I mean, it's all very interesting. No, but uh, I, just, I should say to uh, to listeners that, that Fuchsia is, is, is gesticulating very effectively to describe <laughs> that narrowing of the perspective here with the hands, which I get to see, but you don't, but I felt, felt I should show, no, no, it's very good. It's, 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 it's a very accurate representation. It reminds me, uh, of someone I know who did, you know, I've been a foreign correspondent and abroad and, and some people who do that job go to more dangerous places than I went to. I went to a few dangerous places, but, um, and they did hostile mm. environment training where 
you get kidnapped basically and or you're put in an extreme situation uh, to, to practice what you would do and this is going somewhere don't worry and one of the things they find you know your car gets in in this scenario bomb you get attacked all the horrible things happen to you and in a sort of debrief afterwards they sort of say you know, did you, you, know, you got everyone out, but what about the person you sort of, you got thrown out of the car and you left behind? And they said, the what, the who? And they described that it literally tunnel vision that actually in an adrenaline stressful situation, it's not just that you cognitively you're focused on it, but you actually, mm-hmm. your peripheral eyesight changes and it, because you are so focused on you, you, you get into that state of mind. And it's interesting to think that that is also happening at the level of your, sort of imaginative mm-hmm. capacity so uh, extrapolating into a, you know, the situation where you know if i think about you know british politics between 2016 and 2019 where everyone was just wound up to a state of febrile intensity over yep. brexit and other things it, we would have been almost sort of collectively unable to just make the leap of imagination to think what would be this, the outcome here, the creative way of thinking that could get us out of the situation? We're almost cognitively incapable of, of doing that. Absolutely. It's interesting because what, what negative emotions do to our way of thinking, you know, is it is, is quite incredible. And there was a theory, though, that was proposed to counter this, right? Um, it's called the broaden and build theory of uh, positive emotions um, by Barbara Fredrickson, an American um, psychologist. And it was absolutely brilliant. Um, sort of switch around on it because what she proposed and there's been lots of data to support this is that actually what's happening when we're in that stress position and we engage one um, nervous system the sympathetic nervous system which is the fight or flight nervous system fight flight or freeze actually sometimes have been referred to right um, and you have to to disengage and just sort of acquiesce that um, nervous system down, we have a, a complementary nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system, right? And that's the one that we engage when we do deep breathing exercises, meditation, we relax. When we eat, we engage the parasympathetic nervous system. Might explain a lot of emotional eating for some people to try and calm themselves down, right? Um, when you get into that calmer nervous system, then you feel, and, and that can be done also by positive emotions, right? Your ability to see possibilities and connections. And that's not just with yourself, but to reach out to other people. Okay, so your repertoire of of connection and creativity, and opportunities and future thinking is is completely enhanced. I think of it as the opposite of what happens when we're stressed. Ah, so 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 the French are right, you should basically have a good lunch. But also some good jokes and be happy. So so you can see where I'm going here. If if, if you sell things on, on positive, which people don't always necessarily want to hear, right? Having a positive, happy, hopeful would allow people to see the possibilities because that when you're in that stressed, more negatively driven, you know, or negative emotion driven um, perspective, it's it's temporally myopic, it's short-sighted, but it's also narrow. It says these are the only things that can happen if we don't do this. And that's not true. Right. This is, I think, is particularly relevant to probably the issue that is, you know, where procrastination, I think, has suffused, you know, in 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 a what in a in a sort of psychological sense that we're discussing here, has suffused politics and society, and that is the response to climate change and the climate emergency, mm. because it's got all those elements of look, you don't. It's just so horrifying to think about and. Uh, doing something about it will involve change that feels uncomfortable and it, you can just you, know, you and and yet from what I've understood what you, you've just been saying there's something very alluring 
but also very practical about saying, well, if we could instead focus on, you know, here is a, 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 a pleasurable way to imagine a better way of doing these things that is available, then you get you can you can start to engage with it and focus on it. And then that you can get into a policy position where you're saying now imagine we all did this or we all lived like that. That that feels to me something that is going to be more effective than saying you're all going to fry, get out of your cars, you idiots, which is, seems to me politically not very effective. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So selling the positive vision of the future. And, and, you know, we see a parallel to this, for example, when we're trying to change people's unhealthy behaviors. These are the terrible things that will happen if you keep engaging with uh, this particular negative health behavior. If you drink too much, or you do drugs or, or you don't you know, exercise or, or what have you. The problem with a lot of these these types of things is that people will have a strong reactance and want to avoid them if it goes too far. It's it's They're called fear appeals. And their effectiveness is is it's it's not widespread. It only works under very certain circumstances for people who are already already teetering on the possibility of maybe changing their behavior. For most people, they just tune them right out. I don't want to see that. That's negative. I don't want to. I'm just going to ignore it. So it pushes people into a state of denial, and and that's exactly the same sort of dynamic. So again, yeah, the alternative is selling a positive future. I imagine uh, it's particularly tricky. I know. I mean, going back to the health thing because I know this is an area of your your specialism that with diet and nutrition and obesity, it's particularly hard because you don't, even when you make the positive change, you don't get much gratification. At least when you give up smoking, you you know, you have cravings, but actually within 48 hours, you really, your sense of smell comes back. You know, you start to taste things better and you think, actually, my clothes don't stink. This is, this is good. Whereas it takes quite a long time with nutritional change to really sort of feel the benefits. And so, you know, it's it, it, this seems to me a, a classic example of, of at a institutional, political, and social level, there aren't that many incentives for a government to say take some of the hard decisions that would say we're intervening level where you can't just get crisps and chocolate, you know, at the checkout or whatever, whatever the sort of the decision would be, or we're going to limit the amount of sugar and uh, saturated fat um, because. Yeah, because although sort of notionally you're you're getting good, you can see the better outcome that's available. Your your things are getting more expensive for people. They feel a bit sort of bullied by the government telling them they're, they're overweight, and the reward is just too far in the future to get for a political gain for the minister who says this is what's going to happen. Is I mean that that seems to be the sharp end of this probably. It is. I mean, and, you know, there, there are ways around that, though, too. So um, I know there's been some work done a few years ago that, you know, rather than trying to change people to think more about the future, like, I think that's that's the stumbling point right there, especially when it comes to health behaviors. You know, like you said, there's there's immediate rewards for eating chocolate or crisps or, you know, having a pint or, or what have you, you know, that that are hard to overcome to think about what the long-term consequences are. Some people can do that more. And for those people, these sorts of appeals and telling them this is what you could gain, this is what you can avoid, they'll buy into that. But for those who are tend to think more for the moment, right? And and especially, this is the other thing that happens too. I mean, we, we did a paper on this recently, um, looking at people's different time perspectives. And, you know, some people have a natural tendency to, to look towards the future. Some people think more about the past and some people are just saying, you know what, this is all that matters right now because the world is an awful place. And so the more that there's difficulties going on in the world, so if there's wars, if there's poverty, you know, if there's recessions, if there's, you know, heating crisis, it, it actually, those societal issues 
can have an impact on on how and how much people think about the future because they don't want to again because they start th seeing things as being bleak. So all this to say that in those circumstances or for individuals who may be more prone to think about more immediate consequences, the trick there then, and, and again, there's been some research on this, is actually to sell them of the on the short-term benefits. So if you can sell people on the short-term benefits of changing certain behaviors, right, and, ra and, and downplay the costs, right, then they'll, they'll be willing to give up the immediate benefits for a short-term benefit because it's not that too far in the future. So that future self is there. So it's kind of crudely speaking, that's put the money that you would have spent on those cigarettes in a jar and see how much money you've got in a week and you'll <laughs> notice the difference. <laughs> Used up a lot of your time, so I need to sort of focus on a few of the things I want to pick up before we let you go. On the point of willpower, which is, uh, I don't know, is that something that actually is, is meaningful as a psychological concept? This idea that somehow I've got some battery of drive that means I just do stuff. Is it a real thing? I think we have a lot of lay ideas about willpower is. There was actually a really cool study that just, I think it's just recently come out that's showing that people have these very strong beliefs that having willpower is what gives them self-control. Um, and it's their beliefs about willpower that actually determine their self-control. It's not actually their self-control abilities. There's a lot in there to unpack that we can't necessarily get into now, but that it's, it's a nice kind of umbrella term that people like to use, but I mean, self-control is like anything. It's something that can be learned. And so, so as an example, right? So emotion regulation, right? Requires a certain amount of, of self-control. So it's, it's a related but distinct kind of idea because it's about controlling your emotions, finding ways to manage your emotions. And so there's been several studies done now, and one, one I was involved in as well, that have shown quite clearly that when you give people emotion regulation skills training, and this can be the ability, you know, training them to tolerate those negative emotions. This one study was a randomized control trial. What they found is when they trained people over an eight-week period, um, and this is a simple internet um, intervention, to tolerate negative emotions or then just sort of reappraise them, right, um, in, in, a, in a more positive way, in sort of a way that there was more manageable, their procrastination went down. Interesting. So I have to know, what does that actually look like in practice? I mean, how do, is it like an, an aversion thing where you have to, you're forced to dwell in the same space as a bad feeling? And no, that, that sounds mean. Well, how does this work in practice? Piece of that I think people will identify with more is some of it's just mindfulness training. Is being, so, taught, so part of mindfulness is being able to sit comfortably with both negative and positive emotions and not be, get overwhelmed by them, right? So just letting them be there without running away from them or becoming, you know, completely immersed in, and absorbed by them and fused with them. Um, and, you know, we published a, a study recently showing the same thing that, you know, mindfulness training does reduce academic procrastination in students. Um, so that's, you know, you know, finding ways to down-regulate those negative emotions. When you train, give people those skills, they're now able to tolerate them. And, you know, the way that they're going to approach difficult tasks completely changes. One of the things that we see this as behaviorally as an outcome is that they procrastinate less. Now I'm trying to wonder what that would look like as a policy prescription to try and get people to understand the need to sort of for a progressive taxation to fund a health service and integrated social care system. <laughs> and it's, that, then it gets difficult. I mean, we've been talking about procrastination in terms that it's very much, you know, it's something that's in the, that's happening to an individual you know, in, in the mind as a set of, you know, managing moods. 
is it useful as a term then to extrapolate that to institutions and whole political systems uh, or even a culture at the highest level or or at some point does the mechanism that we've been describing here cease to be analytically useful at that level you know there's not been a lot looked out of this people use that term in those contexts but when when I've seen it used and then when I've looked at those sort of issues where observationally it looks like that's what's happening, I would say yes. Because it is again that it is a human tendency to want to avoid things that are aversive and approach things that are uh, that are rewarding. And and I just I wanted to add in one other thing here, what can we do from a policy perspective? I mean, there's a lot of different things. You know, emotion regulation training skills for children in primary school. Start right from the get-go, giving them as uh, these soft skills, if you like, for being able to manage their emotions so they can cope better. It promotes resilience. So a lot of what we talk about with emotion regulation is actually coping skills. It is about managing stress and being more resilient. So there's a, a number of different important downstream effects fr from that as well. But just sort of bringing that into to place here. So we have been talking about the individual. And I think, again, if we're stepping back from a wider perspective, and I've, I've just written a paper on this, sometimes though, it's not just about the individual when someone is procrastinating. Sometimes it's actually about what's going on in the backdrop of their lives. And that could be happening at a societal level, such as what's happened in the, during the COVID-19 pandemic. That was a huge societal stressor. Procrastination is a quick and easy way of avoidantly coping with negative or difficult emotions. And you've got people, a group of people who are trying to manage a difficult situation, going through a pandemic, for example, living in poverty, dealing with a chronic illness, you know, abuse, trauma, what have you, right? Their coping capacities are already stretched. So they're going to use their coping capacities to deal with these bigger societal issues. And that means that when they get faced with an unpleasant task, they don't have anything left. So they're going to default to the quick and easy solution and put that off. And that, that applies both at the, for want of a better word, elite level to the politicians and officials who are actually dealing with the situation uh, and also to the sort of the laity, the citizens who are just living through it. That mm -hmm. that myopia that you described, the narrowing, the shortening of the horizon and the narrowing of, of focus will also be happening at both levels. That if you were living through sort of febrile times, as I think most people would probably agree we are, we are, uh, you know, we're going to get trapped in that cycle where the imaginative capacity we have across politics to think of how we might get out of that situation is going to take more of an effort to engage that process, that capacity. So those sorts of stressful, you know, societal events, they they tax our, our coping capacities. And, and that has to be taken into consideration, too, in terms of how people react to things and whether they procrastinate more on things and or where their, their resources go, right? We have limited resources, yeah, uh, with how we deal with things. And, and this is, you know, why it's so important to think about building resilience. You know, pandemic has clearly shows us that individuals who already had a lot of skills and, and, and capacities built up to be resilient. In other words, they were able to take those difficult, stressful circumstances they were dealing with and, and manage them in a different way. They fared better than those who already, you know, had maybe their, their coping circumstances uh, depleted because they were in difficult life circumstances before the pandemic hit. I have a, I'm going to say, wild philosophical digression that I could throw in here. Are you okay with that? Just oh, like, yeah. Just, you can, so, so it might just not be a dead end, but it just occurs to me thinking about the point you were making about being goal oriented and the having the, the more able you are or an individual is to 
to sort of get a sense of their how they have agency over the future and what their task is in the future, the further ahead towards the sort of forty-year-old self when they're twenty, whatever future self, they, they they can they can connect that better. Makes me wonder whether there is an issue here where societies that are more ideological or religiously driven or have some structure in place that have a sense of manifest destiny and there is a purpose going forwards that they will have some reserves of that capability and a more a sort of secular individual liberal consumer society that that you where you're just you're making choices for yourself now and you're more in the sort of the habits of instant gratification has is at a disadvantage because there's no sense of collective political process that says you know we'll get to utopia in 20 years time we'll reach socialism or you know the, do you see what do you see the point i'm trying to make here that might be a reaching a bit too far yeah if you have that that shared vision and purpose societally politically religiously what have you what that does is it gives people meaning and we know also that meaningfulness um, allows people to feel motivated um, it, it gives people a stronger sense of, of self and purpose, and it helps them see their goals. And some of the research that, that we've done too actually shows us, I'm bringing it back to procrastination again, is we did do a, um, uh, an experimental study which showed that uh, when you ask people to think about the goals that they're working on, that they were at risk for procrastinating in a more meaningful context. So what does this mean? for you as a person, for your growth, for the people around you. When we followed up with them, you know, two or three days later, they procrastinate less on them. It does help sort of galvanize, I think, you know, maybe failing or weak will and or, you know, difficulty in finding focus and, and purpose and allows you to say, right, this is where we need to go. And, and because when there's so much chaos going on around you, right, you need to have something to focus on. That is, uh, I think, the perfect note on which to, to finish because we like we always like to be optimistic by the end of this podcast, and actually that sense of of that if that finding the meaning in what you do and putting it in the in the wider context, putting whatever task it is uh, within the framework of what you're going to get out of it, even if it's tremendous feeling of it's being done <laughs> which is actually a really great feeling yeah, um, yeah. That, that i think that i mean in terms of at, from the individual level right up through to institutions and politics uh and collectively as a society getting out of some of the holes we're in i i'm feeling more positive about it already so I, i'm gonna say um fuchsia zero thank you so much for that really fascinating uh conversation thank you Oh, my pleasure. It was great, great uh, chatting with you, Ralph. I love, I love these conversations where we can go off in all different directions. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've got, I've got scrawled here notes or questions. I wanted to talk about task initiation at some point and that, because that is, that's, that's where I really struggle, but um, that might be for another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Hi there, it's Phil, the producer. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you found it interesting or have any thoughts about the show, do please tweet us at politics on the we're genuinely interested in any follow-up questions you have about any of our editions and we may even do a special one where raf answers some of those questions don't forget to pre-order his book at rafaelbear.com thanks also to out yonder that's y-o-n-d-e-r for the graphics we'll be back next tuesday with another fantastic guest until next time Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.